tonight we're going to ask ourselves the question, am I a Pharisee? Now, when I ask that question, I, of course, do not mean, are you part of the religious party, the religious sect of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago that rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ? No, I, of course, do not mean that. I mean, are you a Pharisee in the way that the Pharisees were Pharisees? Now, I start here because my perception, and whether my perception is right or wrong, you be judge, my perception is that in some ways, Christians like us, uh, by that I mean Christians who identify as fundamental Christians holding to the fundamental truths of the Bible, those who are broadly, we might say, or additionally conservatively evangelical, are often accused of being Pharisees, I think unfairly. And sometimes the accusation of being Pharisees is really for no different than having a high view of God's word, of attempting to identify what the Bible says about a particular topic and apply it. So I hasten to add, I don't intend to ask whether you're a Pharisee in a kind of mischaracterized or unfair way. I also don't intend primarily to ask tonight whether you're a Pharisee in the sense that you've rejected Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as those did. Of course, if that is your need tonight and that becomes clear to you, I hope that you will accept him as your Savior. I'm not, I'm not predominantly, though, focused on that aspect of salvation. I'm asking, are you a Pharisee or do you have Pharisaical qualities in the way that you relate to God and to others? And I think we see here, as we have not only in our morning services been going through the book of Mark, but also in tonight's passage in Matthew chapter 12, that there are certain characteristics of the Pharisees that are not simply tied to Pharisees. They are a part of our human fabric, a part of our human condition, and that I can be like a Pharisee 2,000 years after the Pharisees were pursuing claims against and rejecting our Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the message tonight is very simply, Don't Be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. And what I want to do tonight is take this passage that I think will be familiar to many of us. I know that many of you in our evening audience were Sunday school teachers in the morning and you may not have heard our message from the end of Mark chapter 2 last week, or maybe you just caught up to that this week, and you're ready to go. This is the same text, or at least the same story, I should say not the same text, the same story that we looked at last Sunday morning. So I hope there is some familiarity to it, and we'll use some of that familiarity to drive down ultimately to verse number 7. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open tonight in whatever form they're in, and look at verse 7 with me. Jesus says in the Sabbath dispute, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have or I desire to have mercy and not sacrifice. What does God want? What does God desire? He wants mercy and not sacrifice. 
Jesus says, you would not have condemned the guiltless. I'm convinced this evening that there is profound meaning in what Jesus says in those simple words, not only to resolve the Sabbath dispute that was the topic of our text here this evening, but to apply more broadly to a fundamental problem at the root of what it meant to be a Pharisee 2,000 years ago and what it means to be a modern-day Pharisee today. What I want to start with is a characteristic of, of Pharisee is, first of all, a failure of perception. A failure of perception. To be a Pharisee or to share Pharisaical traits, we might say, begins or at least is tied to a failure of perception. Now, let's understand exactly what is going on here. Jesus is going on the Sabbath day with his disciples through what is called the corn. And if you heard our message last week, you would know that when the New Testament speaks of corn in our King James translations, it is not speaking of maize. It is not speaking of American corn, which is native to America. They would have had no idea what maize was in Bible times. What was corn? Well, when our King James Bible was translated, corn would have been synonymous with grain. If you ask what corn is, you could be talking about maize. You could also be talking about grain. So this is grain. It would have been wheat or it would have been barley. So don't think of big corn fields that they're walking through near harvest. They're walking through a wheat field or a barley field. We don't know which one. It depends on which time of year it was. And if you can imagine, Jesus' disciples are going through after synagogue. And they are hungry. And so they are picking the grain. And what they're doing is they're rubbing the kernel and separating it from the wheat, from the stalk, and ultimately from the chaff. So they're taking this and they're eating it. They're rubbing it in their hands and they are eating it. And immediately the ecclesiastical police jump up and say, what are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath. Now, why did the Pharisees say they were breaking the Sabbath? They said they were breaking the Sabbath because the Pharisaical laws would have prohibited at least a couple things on the Sabbath. Well, what was the main Sabbath command from the Old Testament? Don't what? Don't work. Servile work, our King James Bible says in at least one place. No servile work. So the Pharisees had to say, okay, what is servile work? Actually, interestingly, if you go to the Talmud, which is a time which was a, a large compendium of Jewish laws and regulations applying the Old Testament law, um, commentators tell us that in that Talmud, there were over 200 categories of prohibitions on the Sabbath, over 200 things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then they broke down into subcategories such that there were over 500 apparently, um, prohibitions on the Sabbath. And some preachers have taken time to go through those. And, and really, if I read them to you, you'd think, these are crazy. These are really remarkable. But two of them, for certain, that the Pharisees would have said, you can't reap on the Sabbath day. You're, if you're a farmer, you can't go out and reap. Well, there was some biblical basis for this. In the Old Testament, God says in the Ten Commandments, in, in, in the Old Testament law, you do not um, you observe the Sabbath in harvest. You don't work in harvest. 
if it's, the, if it's Sabbath day in harvest, you don't go out and reap. So the Pharisee says, okay, you don't reap. And what else don't you do? You don't thresh. You don't separate the kernel from the chaff. Okay, well, the Pharisees look at Jesus' disciples. They say, well, you're reaping because you're picking wheat. You're threshing because you're separating the kernel out. And then you're eating it. You're a Sabbath breaker. You're violating the law. Now, it's interesting. I just want to make this simple point. The Pharisees had what we would call a very high view of the Old Testament law. Could we all agree with that? There were some people in, in Jesus' day that couldn't care less what the law said. These were the people who cared very much about what the law said, and they sought to apply it to every aspect of their lives. Now, in that sense, again, on a very high level, we would say their view of God's law and of God's desire for humanity was correct. Because for over 40 years, this church has stood for the idea that we should have a high view of God's word. And we should try to searchingly apply it to every area of our lives. And there would be many that would criticize us for saying, you're too narrow. You're too focused on text. You're too focused on strict interpretation. You mean you take the Bible literally? Who are you? We would be criticized by many quarters for having too high a view of God's word. The simple point is that the Pharisees had an extremely high view of scripture. And in fact, Jesus himself recognizes this in Matthew 23, when he said the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Do you know what he said? Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, do it. Have you thought about that? Whatever they told you to do, do it. But don't do what they do. For they say, but they don't do. Jesus is acknowledging the respect, at least in an in external sense, that they had for the word of God. Here was the problem. In their high view of scripture, they were entirely misapplying it to the particular situation in front of them. Look at me at how this becomes clear. Verse 2, the Pharisees see it. They said unto him, behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, have ye not read what David did? When he was hungry and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and indeed eat the showbread, which was not, now notice that next word, it was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. He said, what's his point? They said to him, you're doing what's not lawful. And notice that Jesus did not say, oh, that's just based on your traditions. That's just based on your traditions. Those are all nonsense. I'm not really breaking the law, Sabbath law. Now, I think it would be a very good dispute about whether seriously plucking a little bit of wheat and rubbing it in your hands and getting kernels of grain to eat, seriously, that was violating the strict letter of the Old Testament law against work. I, I think Jesus would have had a very strong case that that was not. But here's the point. Jesus doesn't argue that. He says, well, don't you know that in the Old Testament, God, a man after God's own heart named David, God's anointed, did something that wasn't lawful too? What are you going to do with that? What did he do that wasn't lawful? 
there is an Old Testament command that the showbread, the bread of the presence, the bread set out before God, could only be eaten by the priests. And David is starving with his men on the run from Saul. He goes into the priest and he says, do you have any food? And we said, they said, we only have the showbread. We only have the bread of the presence that was, would have been brought away when new bread was put on. And David took it and he ate it. He violated the letter of the law. What is the point David is making? He is saying, what David did, haven't you read what David did? What David did wasn't wrong. It was technically unlawful, but it was not morally unlawful. Do you see? It was technically unlawful, but it was not morally unlawful. Notice what he goes on to say. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. What's he saying? How many sacrifices did a priest have to perform in the temple on the Sabbath day? Twice as many. It was double work. Do you think anyone would look at what the priest was doing in the Sabbath, taking a dead animal, wrangling with it, getting it onto the altar, hoisting it up, burning it, taking the blood, sprinkling it, um, disposing of it, all that, and say, well, that's not work. Of course it's work. Jesus is saying the law itself recognizes that these sacrifices which require intense manual labor are, are, would technically be unlawful because they're work but morally they are not. And he goes on to make the simple point, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Now, what's the point? The point is that in certain cases, technical illegality is not moral wrongdoing. And the, the example I used last Sunday morning is the one I'll use again tonight. An ambulance speeding someone to the hospital is violating the speed limit law. But none of us would say that the ambulance is violating the law. Why? They're violating the speed limit, but they are not violating the law. Why? Because echoing what Jesus said in Mark, the speed limit was made for man, to serve man. And if man needs to get to the hospital because he's going to die, the speed limit is subsumed under the greater duty of benefiting man. And so the ambulance doesn't truly violate the law. Or the example that I gave, there are minimum speed limits on our highways. If you are driving in a blizzard and to drive safely, you have to go below the minimum speed limit. You are violating the minimum speed limit, but you are not violating your moral or legal obligation. Why? Because your ultimate obligation is to drive safely. It is to protect and to preserve life. That's the simple point. It's the analogy that Jesus seems to be drawing here. My disciples are hungry. They are experiencing necessity in the presence of the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Lord of the Sabbath decrees now that what his disciples are doing, whether or not it is technically unlawful, is not morally so. Because the Sabbath was made for man. It was made to benefit man. And therefore, it is not unlawful on the Sabbath to do what blesses man. You see, that is the argument as I read it 
that Jesus is making. Now notice, the Pharisees who had such a high view of the law, such a high view of God's moral obligation, are the ones who have misapplied it to a particular circumstance that Jesus says, you missed it. But notice what Jesus uses to expose their misunderstanding. Notice what he says in verse 3. Have ye not read what David did? Have you not read? Notice what he says in verse 5. Have you not read in the law? Notice what he says in verse 7. But if ye had known what this means. Have you read? What would the Pharisees say? Of course we've read that. Have you read what happens to the priests in the temple? Of course we have. We have a high view of the law. Do you understand what it means? Of course we do. We're the Pharisees. We're the gatekeepers. We sit in Moses' seat. This would have slapped them across the face. Of course they had read. But here's the problem. They did not understand. Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Why did they condemn the innocent? Why did they misapply God's word to what Jesus' disciples were doing? Why? Because they didn't understand the Bible. They didn't understand it. Those who were so proud of their interpretive care had missed the point. And I want to simply identify this. When Jesus said, if you knew what this means, I want, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he wasn't pulling out an obscure principle from the Old Testament. Can we agree there? Hosea chapter 6, God is talking to his people and he's telling them, your righteousness, your goodness before me is like dew on the morning grass. It's here for the shortest period of time and it evaporates. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Isaiah chapter 1, God says to his people, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings that you are bringing to me. Here's what he says. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. What's he saying? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Micah chapter 6, a rhetorical question, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God's response through Micah is, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? What does God require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? 
God is saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he's saying it over and over and over and over again to his people. And now Jesus looks at the Pharisees who had such a high view of the law and said, you missed it. And it's causing you to misapply the Bible to specific circumstances. And this is where I want to simply speak to us. In a church that I hope and trust has had a high view of the word of God in the way we teach. That encourages the regular reading of God's word. That encourages the regular memorization of God's word. Let me tell you, friends, that does not mean that you are going to understand Scripture or apply it rightly. It is not good enough that we are faithful readers of the Bible. It is not good enough that we are faithful memorizers of the Bible. It is not good enough that we hear the Bible regularly preached from this pulpit with a high view of its authority and its inerrancy. If we do not know the author of the Bible we will not understand the words of the book. Or to put it the other way, to understand the words of the book, you need to understand the priorities and the heart of its author. The point is, you and I need to be humble when we approach the word of God. That ultimately faithfulness to it, a high view toward it is not enough to guarantee that I'm going to interpret it rightly. I remember when I was in college, I was a freshman in college and there was a girl in my dorm and she told me once, she said, you know, I, I know people who know the Bible better than you do. And I remember responding in such pride. I said, oh, I don't know about that. I read the Bible all the time. And I really, we were getting in an argument, like who knew the Bible better, me or, or these friends that she was identifying? What a proud little Pharisee I was. I mean, seriously, I say that honestly looking back with shame. Because as I've studied the Bible now more in the nearly 20 years that have passed, I've realized how little I knew of the Bible at that time. How little I truly understood how to apply it or to glean teaching out of it. And even to this day, how much more I have to learn in that process. The idea that I was puffing out my chest and saying, don't you know how much I read it? I was a Pharisee. Humility is necessary for us to recognize it's not enough to read it. Unless I know what the author's heart is for it. That was what the Pharisees missed. It was, first of all, a failure of perception. Secondly, let's see that it was a failure of priority. Now, I want to really dig in here to verse number seven. But if ye had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would have applied it right. You would have gotten it. You would not have condemned my disciples who were not doing anything wrong. You hear that? If you would have known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's try to dig into this. What does this mean? What is sacrifice? And what did it stand for in God's teaching in the Old Testament? Sacrifice, if I could characterize it together in view of the Old Testament, sacrifice is what I do to approach God. Can we agree there on that basic idea? Sacrifice is what I do to approach God. Think about what an Old Testament sacrifice is. I take something that is valuable to me. Perhaps it is an animal. It is an ox. It is a goat. It is a sheep. It is a pigeon. 
Or perhaps it is the first fruits of my harvest. Or it is a drink offering of something that I pour out to the Lord. Or it is an offering of my monetary resources. Whatever it is, it is something valuable to me that I bring and I present to God. It is something that I do to approach God. Now again, if we were just to say, what is sacrifice biblically? God has opened an avenue, a door, for me to approach him with something that has value to me. Now, if we make the analogy to the Sabbath, right? Jesus is saying, if you knew that my heart is for mercy and not sacrifice, you would have understood this whole principle. So Jesus is analogizing sacrifice to the Sabbath. Do you see that? He's analogizing sacrifice, what the Pharisees were prioritizing, and when they were prioritizing their view of the Sabbath. So the analogy here is that sacrifice is something that I bring to God as a kind of ritual or ceremonial observance. It is something that I do perhaps even regularly or routinely, to bring myself before God and approach him. And again, Jesus here is seemingly by analogy to bringing it to a much larger standing of ritual religion, practices that I do and bring before God. Well, what is mercy? The word mercy here has the idea of compassion, in active compassion. It has the idea of kindness, Okay, now kindness and compassion is not first what I do, it is something that I am. You see the difference? Sacrifice is something that I do to approach God. Mercy is something that I am, it is my character. It is something that I experience internally before I experience it externally. Now here's the point. Sacrifice is something that I do to God, if you will. Mercy, this is important. Mercy is what God does in me. Now let that one sink in for just a moment. You say, why is mercy something that God does in me? Because the only true mercy to have God's character requires God to do something in you because you do not naturally have God's character of mercy. You do not naturally have God's heart of compassion. When God says, I desire mercy in you, he's saying, I desire something that only I can give you. Why does scripture say the new covenant that had been promised to the Old Testament people of God was something that they needed in a new heart? I will put my laws inside you. I will give you a new heart. I'm going to take out your stony heart that does not match my character. And I'm going to put in you a new heart, a new character, a new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Sacrifice is what I bring to God. It's what I do on behalf of God or to approach God. Mercy is something that God must do in me. Now you say, why 
is this important? Jesus thought this passage was so important that he quoted it again in Matthew chapter 9. If you were to go back three chapters, you might just make a little cross-reference of this in your notes in your Bible. Matthew 9, 13. The Pharisees are saying to Jesus, why are you going to eat with publicans and sinners? Don't you understand? Their, their, their essence was, aren't you going to get dirty? And Jesus says, but go and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. This is such an important problem for the Pharisees. Jesus quotes this verse to them twice. Why is he saying that? Because what God has always been saying is, I prefer mercy over sacrifice. Now, I want to just ask you this question for point of clarity. In the Old Testament, did God care about sacrifice? Of course he did. When God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he's not saying, hey, you don't need to worry about any approach to me. You don't need to worry about my ceremonial observance. You don't need to worry about sacrifice anymore. It's done. He wasn't saying that. What he was saying is, I want first mercy. And then, and only then, do I want sacrifice. In other words, if we were going to say it, we would say it in another way like this. God says his choice is I will have the internal character first. I will have the external action second. You see that? I will have the internal character that I give you first. And then you will be prepared to offer the external response that I also desire. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Do you know that God was making this point from the very beginning? When was the first time that a sacrifice was made by man to God that we have recorded in the Bible? There was a sacrifice that God made for man when he killed an animal and clothed their nakedness. What was the first sacrifice that man made to God? Cain and Abel. Abel brought of the first fruits of the flock. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And God had respect unto Abel and his offering. But to Cain and his offering did not God have respect. What is the point that God was making there all along? Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Two sacrifices were brought before God. Some people have tried to say, well, one was animal and one was grain. No, the Old Testament law provided for both. There is no evidence to suggest that God said, well, we need animal sacrifices, and that's why he chose Abel's and rejected Cain's. No, why did God reject Cain's and accept Abel's? It was because one came from a heart of faith, a heart that had been ref was reflecting the character of God, and one came from a heart that did not. And God says to Cain, if you did well, don't you think you'd be accepted too? What's the point? God was showing us from the very beginning that when it came to the internal character or the external action, God accepts and prioritizes the inner character and says, when the inner character is there, the external action that I desire will follow. I want mercy first and not sacrifice. Do you know this is in the very character of the sacrificial system? What did, was the sacrificial system meant to do? 
It was meant to be an avenue so that, so that sinful men could approach God and have relationship with him and thereby be transformed into his character. But was it a permanent moral aspect of God's plan? No. It was only a picture. It was only a shadow of what was coming in Jesus Christ when his redemption offered to us by a one-time sacrifice once for all was the only way that man could be redeemed and be right before God and have his character transformed from the inside out. God's plan has always been to provide in his people a heart of mercy that matches his heart to have people that reflect his character. The sacrificial system was a vehicle for men and women to reflect his character. It was never a replacement. It was never a substitute. And God says... I want mercy. And then, and only then, will you be in a position to offer the sacrifice that pleases me. So notice, first of all here, a Pharisee has a failure of perception. They may have a high view of the word of God, but they do not truly understand its requirements, and therefore they misapply it. And why do they misapply it? It's because they have a failure of priority. They don't truly understand what God's heart for man is. And therefore, they do not entirely understand what God desires for them. Finally, let's look at what I'm going to call for the Pharisee a failure of pride. A failure of pride. Because when we understand why the Pharisees prioritize sacrifice, ceremonial observance, Sabbath, strict Sabbath keeping over God's heart and character of mercy and love and kindness toward his creation, it starts to fall into place what really motivated the Pharisees and how you and I can be a Pharisee today. And it starts with pride. It is a failure of pride. Here is when I understand that sacrifice is what I do to God, where mercy is what God does in me, really matters. Because ultimately the failure of a Pharisee, why do they prioritize sacrifice over mercy? Why do they miss the heart of God? Here's the first thing. It's because it enforces their standing before God. It enforces their standing before God. You say, what do you mean? Let me ask you something. Is it, mercy, is it easier to offer God's sacrifice or to have a truly compassionate heart of mercy toward everyone you come into contact with? Which is easier? To offer a sacrifice, isn't it? Why? Because a sacrifice is something I just need to do that's a whole lot easier than having a transformed character of what I am, not just what I do. Let me, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I want you to imagine that you were entered into a cooking competition and your, that comp competition was going to be judged and graded by some of the greatest chefs in all the world. Do you think it would be easier 
for that chef to give you in that competition a recipe and say, I'm giving you the recipe of what I want. All the ingredients are there. All the directions are there. Everything you need is there. And do that and you'll do great. Would that be easier or would it be easier for the cook to say, for your judges to say, you know what, I'm not going to give you any direction. You cook something that I think is going to taste delicious. You use your knowledge of me, you, you, your understanding of what I like, what kind of methods I have, and you cook me a delicious meal that I'm going to like. Which is easier? Of course it's easier to take a recipe and mark down the box and check everyone and say, Woo! I have cooked a meal that's delicious. Do you know the Pharisee loves that? The Pharisee loves it. Why? Because who's in control? Who's in control when I have a checkbox that I can mark off and say, therefore I did, and therefore God is pleased with me. He thinks what I'm offering is delicious. The problem with the Pharisee ultimately is that they think that by checking the box, sacrifice, ceremonial observance, religious habit and ritual, they are going to have control of what God wants and they will please him. And they can put their arms and put God in a box and say, I just need to do this. And God, you are pleased. Do you know what that ultimately does? It makes my relationship with God one of debt. God, I check the boxes and then you're pleased with me and you bless me. The Pharisees would have absolutely seen their material standing in life as being connected to how well they were checking the box and doing what was right. Their religion. What is religion? Religion is what I do to please God. The gospel is what God has done in Christ to redeem me. It is a completely 180 degree difference. What can I do to please God? What has Christ done to please God on my behalf? They could not be more different. The Pharisee is the one who comes to God in sacrifice and therefore puts God in his debt, in my debt. God, you're obligated to bless me now because I have performed. I have taken your obligations and done it. As Romans 4 says, now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. What does the gospel say? What does grace say? What does mercy say? A heart of mercy requires me to come before God and say, God, I can never have a heart of mercy outside of you. I can never have your heart of compassion for your people without you transforming me from the inside out. God, you are not in a box. You are king. You are Lord. You are going to have to change me. And in that situation, God is not in my debt. I am entirely in his. My response to God is not one of my performance for God. It is part of my humble gratitude and response to God for what he has done for me. The Pharisee is the one whose religion is about performance. The Christian is the one whose relationship to God 
is all about grace. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. So notice, a Pharisee is one who looks at his ceremonial and ritual habits and relationships with God and says, God, aren't I doing a good job? Aren't you pleased with me today? Have you ever gotten up from your Bible reading in the morning and said, God, I read my Bible. Aren't you pleased with me today? God, look at all I did for you to approach you today. Aren't you pleased? And we don't realize that we're really acting like a Pharisee. God desires mercy. He does not first desire our sacrifice. Secondly, it doesn't just enforce my standing before God. It enforces my superiority before others. It enforces my superiority. When my priority to God is my sacrifice, is my religious ritual, is my ceremonial observance, how, what I do to approach God, I am going to fall in very easily to pride. Go over to Luke chapter 18, will you? Go over to Luke chapter 18 because I think we'll see this very clearly in this response of a Pharisee here. Look with me at verse number nine. Verse number nine, Luke chapter 18. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What is that? My standing before God, I'm righteous. They trusted in themselves, why? Based on their performance. And despised others. What's that? Enforcing my superiority of others. I'm better than other people by what I do because I'm righteous. Look at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, a tax collector, an open sinner and cheat. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Who are other men? They are extortioners, they are unjust, they are adulterers, or even as this publican. What is he saying to God? God, other people are bad because of what they do. See that? They're extortioners, they're unjust, they are adulterers. They are bad based on what they do. What does the Pharisee think about himself? I am good based on what? On what I do. Notice what he says. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men. Why? Verse 12. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Notice what the Pharisee says. People are bad because they do bad. I am good because I do good. I perform. And what that leads very easily toward is a view of superiority where look at what I do, look at what that person does. I am morally and spiritually superior. Now, I would say one of the things that I have been most challenged in as I trust I have grown in the faith and grown in grace is to recognize how this priority applies to my view of Christians who do not approach God in the same way that I do in the sense of observances, habits, rituals, and what it means that God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want to be very clear here, and I want to be very careful here, 
there are things based on what we trust is our high view of God's word that we have developed certain traditions, rituals, observances of how we approach God in the music that we share together as a congregation, in how we approach the Bible together in some of our views on certain convictions and other things. Am I saying that those things are not important? I'm not for a moment. Just like God wasn't saying that sacrifices weren't important when he said, my priority is mercy. Here's my question. When I understand that God's central heart, his first heart, is for a heart of mercy that only he can give, my view of others is not merely on whether they are following the same observances or the same ritual or tradition that I am. It is the central question, are they manifesting the heart of compassion for God that only God in the gospel can give? And as I have seen true, sincere, Bible-believing Christians who may view certain approaches to God or observances differently than I do, and I have seen in them, you know what? You have a greater heart of mercy and love toward God and toward his son, Jesus Christ, than I do. It creates in me a humility. Does it create in me a say, well, you must be right about your observance or how you are approaching God? No. We should have a high view of the word of God. We should have convictions about how it applies to our lives. And we should act on them. The simple point is this. Is what I do in approaching God a means of my pride to say, well, therefore I am better. Therefore I am in a closer relationship with God. Or ultimately is my humble heart saying, God, what you ultimately desire is first of all what you have transformed in my life in the way of sincere love and worship of you and of mercy and compassion toward other people. You see, debt, performance, creates pride. Grace, what God only can do in my heart, creates humility. And may all of us be people of humility toward those who reflect the heart of God, who reflect the character of God in their own spiritual lives. May we be delivered from the pride, the censoriousness that views my standing before God and my superiority over others as a basis of my own performance, as a way of my own approach to God. And lastly, and just very quickly, we will only touch on this. The third thing that uh, is a symptom of pride, a failure of pride, is that so often a priority on sacrifice, on ceremonial ritual, is that it simply enforces my own selfishness. The Pharisees were masters of creating and crafting a religious system that allowed them not just to avoid, not just to to enforce their standing before God, but to be a crutch for their own selfishness. They targeted the system to cheat it. Perhaps the greatest example of this is in Mark 7. Jesus says the command of God is being subverted by your own tradition God says, honor your father and mother. And what do the Pharisees do? They take a gift that would, they would be required to give to their parents to support them and to honor them. And they say, sorry, it is a sacrifice. It is a gift to God. I cannot give it to the, my parents. And what do they do? 
they escape the heart of God in compassion and mercy by prioritizing a view of sacrifice that they think can simply enforce their own selfishness. External observance can be a cover for a religion that simply gets me what I want. So let's step back for just a minute. How can you and I be a Pharisee in the way that we approach God today? We are a Pharisee when we prioritize our own performance with a view toward believing that it puts God in our debt instead of recognizing that God's priority has always been the heart of mercy that in grace only he can provide us. It means that when I assess my own behavior, what is that in which I glory? Friends, you and I are pharisaical when we look back over our day and we take glory in what I performed for God instead of prioritizing first and always what God has done in me in transforming character. I am acting like a Pharisee when I interpret what God is desiring for mankind to be what I can offer him in what I do instead of him offering me what only he can do in me. And I am a Pharisee when my system of approaching God, even in areas that God desires or sees as good, becomes an object of my pride before him and an object of my pride in superiority over others based on what they do. Don't be a Pharisee. Not to be a Pharisee is to recognize grace, is to recognize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and each day and every day to be humbled before him to say, God, anything good that comes from me is only first in what you have done in me. And therefore, I am continually in your debt, not the other way around. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. And thank you that we have a wonderful grace that is greater than all our sin. Father, we see in these Pharisees people who had a high view of your word, but because they didn't understand your heart, they could not apply it rightly. Father, we do not want that to be us. We cannot afford for that to be us. We do not want to hear your son saying to us, if you knew what that means, I would have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have misapplied my word. I pray, Father, that you would apply this message to our hearts and lives. May we be people of your word, but may we ultimately be, most importantly, people who know its author. 
I pray, Father, that we would be people of grace. Let's pause. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Is your spiritual life about prioritizing sacrifice, what you do for God? Or is your spiritual life about prioritizing mercy, what only God can do in you? Is your spiritual life about how you perform? Or is your spiritual life prioritized most about what only he can perform in you and through you? Is your spiritual life about debt? Or is it about grace?